as we, uh, as we went through a very challenging year, and as we are ushering in a new year, I think actually there's a word of encouragement that is in order. I, I just uh, came across uh, this quote by Henry Nouwen, and he's a, a really prolific a writer, Christian writer, and a thinker. And I think, uh, I, I, don't, uh, I don't know the context, but likely this was uh, probably came from a book that he wrote, The Return of the Prodigal Son, as we all know about the, the parable. And this is what he said, we are not what we do. We are not what we have. We are not what others think of us. Coming home is claiming the truth. I am the beloved child, child of a loving creator. We no longer have to beg for permission from the world to exist. And when I just kind of read this quote, it really just spoke to me because this world tells us how we should think of ourselves. Like we are this or we are that, according to its own standard, depending on like how much money you have, what kind of success you achieve in your life, what kind of credentials you have, what kind of achievement that you have, uh, uh, you have accomplished in society or in your own life. And they kind of judge you according to that. But the scripture and what Henry Nouwen reminds us is to really, once again, claiming and embracing the truth of God, God's word. That this is where we really truly find who we are, how we ought to think of ourselves, that our true identity is found only in Christ and the truth of God's word. So as we begin this new year, 2021, may that be our approach, that we will really embrace the word of God, not what the world tells us. The media, the social media and everywhere is trying to guide us, trying to tell us how to live our lives, how we are to think, process things. But may we really turn to our, uh, the only source of, uh, source of truth, the only source of understanding our faith, that is our word of God, that is the word of God. Um, you know, though it's a uh, new year, and the rollout of the vaccine is underway, but the sting of last year still remains with us. But the fact is that life goes on, right? Even though no matter what has happened in the past, life still goes on. The show must go on. So then what kind of mindset are we to have in the midst of the pandemic that just simply would not go away? You know, in this passage, passage that we just read tells us some lessons, a couple of them. There are, uh, there are many more, but there are a couple lessons I think that we can take to heart. Here's a little background to this passage. You know, during, uh, during Jesus' day, most people would consider Moses and Elijah to be the two most prominent and uh, the two, two most important figures 
in their history. As we know, Moses led the Israelites from bondage to the promised land, almost there, right, during the 40 years. And he was the one through whom that God revealed the law, his will. And you will remember that when Moses was on Mount Sinai, God gave him the Ten Commandments. So just the way God has used Moses, especially in in the formation of uh, the, the history of Israel, he was instrumental, and he walked with God. So they considered Moses to be one of the, the greatest figures in their history. Just as, you know, we have Mount Rushmore, right? Those four presidents and a few others that we consider to be so, so well respected. But it's only in the span of like a little over 200 years that we have these figures. But for the, in their history, to be like the top two, that's pretty big, right? And Moses actually had another mountaintop experience with God. It was also on Mount Sinai or Horeb during a time when Moses was really disappointed with the people, a time when they were questioning him and God. So he was really discouraged and just just, was complaining to God and said, God, I cannot do this anymore. These people are constantly complaining, whining, and they are really disobeying. And I just can't, you know, this is like over a million people. And how can I possibly, without the the cell phone or nothing, how can I possibly lead these people? But God tells uh, tells him to get on with the task of leading the people to the promised land. And the discouraged Moses, you know, said to God, you know, please let me see the dazzling light of your presence. At least let me see that you are really with me, that you are really there with me as I lead these people this rebellious, stiff-necked people. He needed reassuring. And God answered him, I will make my splendor pass before you. And then he is able to just glimpse, take a glimpse of the glory of God. And what an experience, what an incredible experience for him. What a sacred moment that he had that he would behold and have a glimpse of the glory of God. Elijah was considered to be the greatest of the prophets. Like Moses, he received revelations from God on mountains. His revelations also came during a time of discouragement. You may remember that Elijah you know, faced you know, the, the 450 prophets of Baal and, 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 the, and the Asherah, right? Um, so these um, prophets of uh, idols, right? And they had a showdown on Mount Carmel, right? And there was no rain for like over three years. When uh, Elijah had all the people gather, all the Israelites gather, and then they, you know, they set up two altars, right? And when the, the prophets of Baal just prayed to their God for all those things, nothing happened. Whereas when Elijah prayed, the fire of God came from heaven and just consumed, you know, after he, they drenched it with water, right? It consumed his sacrifice. He had an incredible moment. And then after that, he prayed, 
and a rain that did not come for over three years would come because of his prayer. What an experience. But then after that, you know, there was, because of the threat from the, the, um, the evil queen Jezebel, right, he runs. He's, he's afraid. And he had become so exhausted while battling the prophets of Baal. And he was so distraught that as he was on the run, he even prayed, right? He even prayed for God to take his life. Man, you know, can you imagine after having such an incredible moment in front of the whole people, right? Having incredible victory and stri- striking down all the prophets of Baal. And then he runs away. And he even prays that God take my life. I- I'd rather die. I just can't. This is just too much for me. I am so discouraged and exhausted and tiring just to, be, to live a life of righteousness, to live a life that is pleasing to you. It's just too hard. But God sustains him until he reaches Mount Sinai. And then there, we also know the story that when he was in a cave, God, you know, passes him by in terms of his glory. And he hears, not in the, you know, the, the spectacular like, uh, display of like earthquake, fire, none of that was, that's not where he saw the God, but the whisper that came, gentle whisper came. And God reassures him that he was with him, just as he has done with Moses. And these two people were the spiritual giants to people during Jesus' time. And you know, guess what? You know the, the, what the last three verses uh, in their Bible, which is the Old Testament, you know what the last three verses say in Malachi chapter 4? If you can turn there. Um, it says this, Malachi chapter 4, verse 4 Last three verses. This is the last, last three verses as far as they are concerned of their Bible. Because Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel, meaning Sinai, Mount Sinai. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the very last three verses in their Bible, God mentions Moses and Elijah. In chapter 8, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus tells the disciples for the first time that he would suffer and die right, in Jerusalem. When they heard it, Peter especially, infamously, rebukes Jesus. You should, that, should, that should not happen. What are you talking about? What do you mean you're going to suffer and die? You shall not do that. Right? He rebukes him. Can you imagine Peter rebuking his master, Jesus? And in turn, Jesus rebukes Peter, right? You know, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking of things of God, but th- things of men. So that's what happens in chapter 8. And in the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, that whole story now from uh, chapter 9 on, it's about the last, going up to the uh, last trip that he makes to, to Jerusalem. And in today's text, in chapter 9, the beginning part, 
Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up the mountain. And his appearance changes. I mean, it changes to the point where his clothes are even more, more transformed. It's not just him, but his clothes were transformed, intensely white, that no one on earth could even bleach his clothes. It wasn't just his face. It wasn't just his hands and feet. His clothes even transformed. Then Moses and Elijah suddenly appears. They appeared and then they talked with Jesus. On top of all that, I mean, so can you imagine Peter, James, and John, they're looking at Moses and Elijah. They were talking, they appear suddenly, and they are talking with Jesus. And on top of that, a voice from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And just that affirmation, that, that really, that even the voice obviously coming from the Father, affirms the authority of Jesus in the minds of his disciples. What an out-of-body out kind of experience that they had. Then it is over. The mountain experience ends just as suddenly as it's, uh, it has begun. After the voice Moses and Elijah depart, and only Jesus and three disciples remain. And usually when we think about the transfiguration story, the verses 2 through, uh, two through 8 are what we focus on about the transfiguration story, and then we kind of move on to the next part of the story. But you know, verse 9 is noteworthy, and I believe it is just as important for us to understand. It seems strange that during times like this, that Jesus does not really take time and discuss what had happened with the disciples. And verse 9 offers a clue. Verse 9 says, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Jesus tells them not to tell him, tell anyone. Why? Why does Jesus say this? Why did Jesus forbid them from telling others about this incredible encounter after his resurrection? I mean, wouldn't it make sense for them to tell others about this, this, this spectacle that they had just witnessed? I mean, surely if they, as soon as Peter, James, and John came down and just started with the, the rest of the disciples, guys, you would not believe what we have just witnessed. We saw Moses and Elijah, and we heard the voice from heaven. Isn't this incredible? Surely, if they had done so, surely it would have fortified the aura, aura about Jesus. I mean, Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah, I mean, that would at least thrust him into the same revealed status as them. And a voice from the cloud affirming his sonship, I mean, that's game over, right? But Jesus charges them strangely 
he charges them not to tell others about this experience. Very puzzling, isn't it? The thing is, the, 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 the last part, it says, he charges them not to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The reason, the reason is because he wanted them to have the full story of his life. The cross, the resurrection, ascension, and all of that, the, that those dimensions. Before they interpreted them, uh, for themselves what they had experienced, he did not want them drawing conclusions until they had, until they had the full story before them. So then, what are, what are the lessons that we can learn from this passage? And what's it got to do with us as we are, you know, entering into 2021? The first uh, lesson that we can think of is the danger of premature conclusions. The danger of uh, premature conclusions. Now, drawing conclusions too quickly can cause us to miss the full truth and understanding that otherwise could be known. One can only imagine what would have happened if the three disciples were around, went around and told everyone about this, about this encounter, right? this transfiguration experience, you know, immediately after, the, after that event. The thing is, these guys did not even have an accurate understanding of who Jesus was still, even at this time, in the, in the life of uh, Christ. Even though Jesus was with them for like three years, but these disciples, they still didn't have a clue. He, they had a very vague idea about who Jesus might be, but he, they didn't really have an accurate understanding of who Jesus was. Because to them, their idea of the, uh, of the Messiah was that of a political and military leader who would uh, defeat the you know, pagans like the Romans and restore the former glory of David. That's, that's, that's their understanding of who Messiah was. So even though they said, you are the Messiah, right? Peter made that famous confession. But even their, his uh, terminology, the Messiah, was very different from what Jesus has come to do. So their understanding was really flawed. It is really suspect, right? So can you imagine they just told, went around and told everybody about this? You know, Acts chapter 1-6, even this has happened like after the resurrection, right before Jesus is uh, about to depart and just go, ascend and go back to the Father. And, uh, Acts chapter 1-6 says, So when they had come together, the disciples asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So even after the resurrection, still before the, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, the disciples still thought in an earthly term, the Messiah that Jesus was, that they thought of after his death and resurrection, they still thought that, okay, so he's our Messiah. That means he's going to restore the former glory, just the kingdom earthly kingdom of Israel 
Oh, so Jesus, are you going to now, now that you resurrected, now you're going to just drive out Roman forces? The, the foreign occupying forces? And then you're going to create a really like great nation for us Jews? That was their understanding even after the resurrection. Their idea and expectations of Jesus was completely different from the mission of Christ. Not having a full and accurate understanding would have only added confusion and ill-advised, ill-advised um, you know, hope on Jesus because their idea of who he should be would have really clouded their, uh, what the true uh, mission and who Jesus really was. So the disciples, knowing all that was going to happen, Jesus charges them to tell no one about what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The disciples had to go through the devastation of losing their master, his death, and resurrection, and also the coming of the Holy Spirit to understand fully the whole story of Jesus Christ. What he has truly come to do, even though he told them time after time, and yet they couldn't still get it. They're really thick-headed. We may think that, boy, these guys are really you know, dense. But what about us? Are we not like that? in many ways, anything short of this full understanding is not the accurate understanding of the gospel. You have to know the whole story. That's why Jesus tells him not to quickly draw a conclusion. Jump the gun. Do not jump the gun. Deficient understanding of the scripture leads to wrong conclusions and expectations. And if you have really half-baked understanding of the scripture, that can really just lead us astray. Or even, the, even with the best intentions, we may uh, and get, do things or come to an uh, unbiblical, unfounded conclusions. Um, so, for example, back in the 90s, um, uh, there was this... Uh, national like movement it was called true love waits pledge maybe some if you're old enough maybe you, you know that but basically it is a, a movement among the the christian youth and that they would pledge purity until marriage right so they would uh you know pledge so they would uh, have a campaign where so like all the church and there are a lot of churches that participated in this is to just, you know, in their youth groups especially, you know, they just talk about the importance of abstinence and purity until, the, until marriage. And then so the, all the, the teenagers, they would just uh, make that commitment, right? And they would have this, like, you know, banquet and, like, you know, and then the parents, uh, they get, uh, the parents got involved and the parents would just, you know, give them to buy, like, really nice ring or necklace or something to remember, uh, to, to remind them of their pledge and commitment before God. And then they were celebrated together. And so the pledge goes something like this. Believing that true love waits, I make a commitment to God, myself, my family, my friends, my future mate, and my future children to be pure. And, you know, 
blank abstinent uh, from this day until the day I enter a biblical marriage, marriage relationship. And so, and even at, at, back then I, I was a youth pastor, and so like, you know, like so many people, the kids, they got excited. We talked about, you know, you know how we have to be like pure before, before God and just, you know, uh, for our future spouse and all these things, and then let's do this. And then, so we did all of that. It was great. I mean, people were like, the kids were crying, the parents were going, oh, you know, like, you know, this, my, my, my daughter, my, my son, they, they're committing themselves to purity until marriage. Oh, how beautiful this is. It was great. Estimated two and a half million youth took pledge in the, in the, in the 90s and uh, early 2000s. And I was like, I was big proponent, yeah, let's do this, you know, and so it sounds really great, doesn't it? Like really challenging uh, all the teenagers, young people, uh, with all the temptation that they face, that they would make a commitment before God, in front of their parents, in front of their friends, and to their future spouse and their future children, they will remain pure before God. What a great idea. What a great campaign. But the thing is, but the whole premise is that if I remain pure before God, then God will give me a spouse. God will give me children. Meaning, the assumption is, if I remain pure, if I keep my end of the deal, that God's going to bless my you know, commitment, and God, will, God will let me get married. God has to keep his end of the bargain. He needs to find me a good uh, spouse. That's what it really, it, even though nobody says it like that, but that it was the understanding. Even, I was, even as I was uh, leading the charge, as I like, let's do this, guys, you know, with our you know, teenagers. But that was basically, even though I didn't really think through all of that, you know, I was, I was dumb. I didn't really think about all these things, um, you know, but because everybody was so into it, like people thought, oh yeah, you, know, you got to do this in your church. It's great. Everybody's doing it. And all the, the churches, they're doing this like, true love waits thing. The whole premise is that I will get married. I'm going to get married. God will, you know, bring to me somebody special. So until then, I will keep myself pure and abstinent. I'm going to, you know, maintain my abstinence before God. What a great thing. What a great commitment. But once again, even though it, is so, it sounds so Christian, and it's, it's the, the, uh, the cause, is, the motivation is great. But once again, the, what's behind it is that if I do this, God, you're going to get me a really great spouse. But what about the people? And first of all, there are a lot of people that did not really keep this com- uh, commitment. But not only that, but the more troubling thing is, what about the, the, the teenagers who made a commitment and then kept themselves pure and stayed abstinent but never got married? What would happen to them? Believing that God would bring somebody into the marriage. But when there was no marriage, there was no one that they could find or somehow God did not allow marriage to these precious people, what would have happened to them? What's up, God? What's going on? 
I made a commitment while all the people are just like, kinda, you know, just like falling and just making compromises. I kept myself pure. And how come I don't, I'm not getting married? You see, even as it's, uh, you know, it sounds really Christian-y, I don't know if that's a word, but you know, it sounds very Christian, but you see even that the premise, the assumption behind it, it's not biblical. All of us have drawn conclusions without having the full story. Our first impressions of other people stubbornly stay with us. We have judged people prematurely. I've done it many, many times, more than I can care to you know, count. We've made decisions without weighing all the options, all the possible options. We have refused to give people a second chance. But this passage tells us the danger of drawing premature conclusions. Wait until we have as much of the story as possible before making a decision or judgment, especially when it comes to other people. Premature premature conclusions can cause so much trouble, just like with Abraham, even though God promised a seed, a son, through him, uh, through Sarah, and yet he could not wait. And he had to, you know, have a son through Hagar, Ishmael. So because of the, the, the side of Isaac, you know, the descendant, obviously, is uh, Israel, and the descendant of Ishmael, right, they're the, uh, the Arab right, uh, race, uh, people. So think about that decision that he has made. I just can't wait until God does some, something miraculous. So he took the matter into his own hands, tried to make it happen by producing a son, an heir for himself. And the consequence is now what we are facing in the Middle East. And the second uh, point is, so the danger of premature conclusions. And then the second point is life's sacred moments. Disciples here had a sacred moment. We all have had sacred moments in our lives. And a sacred moment is an experience that lifts us beyond the ordinary to know the extraordinary. There are moments when when we sense strength in weakness, hope in despair, and forgiveness in guilt. And usually these sacred moments are moments of grace. You know, those times when we, uh, when, we have, uh, when we are given undeserving, unmerited love, second chance to help us become the people that we are capable of becoming. We all have had moments like that, especially when the life is really difficult. Times when someone says, by words and actions, that we are forgiven after we have hurt them. Somebody, people, will forgive us through their words and through their actions. It's a sacred moment. Moments when we hear, I believe in you. When we were given a second chance. Those times when we sense God's loving presence in our souls. These are sacred moments. And think about it in your own lives. 
you have to have a few sacred moments that lift us beyond the ordinary to experience and to know the extraordinary. And that's, the, that's what happened with Peter, James, and John. It doesn't have to be supernatural like this. But those who recognize them and treat them as such encounter God in a deeper, deeper way. I remember uh, uh, many, many years ago, I was really struggling uh, in, in ministry. So I, I really was struggling about, should I stay in ministry? Like, I, I was very discouraged. Um, and I was like, man, am I, should I just calling it quits, throwing the towel and maybe try to just look for a job, uh, just regular job? Why, why can't I just be like everyone else? Just go to a you know, regular job and just earn regular money. And then I'll just you know, attend the church and then serve God faithfully in my local church. Why can't I just simply do that? I was really struggling in ministry. And there was a moment when I was really praying to God. It was just really close to, getting close to giving up on ministry. And suddenly, uh, just uh, this flash just went through my mind. And the picture that I got was the moment when I first knelt down before God to commit myself to ministry. I remember the time clearly. Um, I mean, that, that memory just out of nowhere, right? It just was, it just came upon me, and it was just like this like electricity, you know, just kind of going down your spine, you know, those kind of experiences. So that ha- happened to me, and that was just an affirmation, okay? That was so clear to me. I, it, I wasn't expecting that, but it just reminded me so powerfully that I said, okay, I took that to me. I didn't hear an audible voice, but that was enough for me that God reminded me to remember the time right, that you made a commitment to be in ministry full-time. And so that's when I said, okay, God, okay, I remember. I remember that commitment that I have made. And I believe that you are still calling me to, to stay, remain in ministry. So to me, among others, there was a sacred moment I didn't see a vision. I didn't hear God speaking to me. But that memory, that precious memory, really stuck with me. For some of us who are married, maybe one of the sacred moments would be that time when you made a vow before God. Vow before, most, yeah, first and foremost, vow before God. And to the family members, friends, people who were there, I make this commitment before God and the witnesses. That is a sacred moment. The moment that when we put our trust in Christ, or the moment that you really, you know, took it seriously, right, of what it means to live for God. What we need to remember is that we do not experience sacred moments every time life becomes strained. Moses didn't. When he had tough times, God didn't show up every time and just had some incredible moments all the time. Elijah didn't. Jesus didn't. The disciples didn't. We wish we would have like sacred moments all the time, right? Every time when there's like a little difficulty and we are struggling, we wish that we would have this like, ooh, you know, the out-of-body kind of, out-of-body kind of experience and just go crazy and just some incredible moments. But it doesn't come all the time. But when we do have them, We should thank God for them. 
and they really commit to memory. Like just place them in our memory bank. Think about those precious moments that you really felt the presence of God. You were really ministered to by your fellow brothers and sisters, people who really care about you. At times, it's what we have retained in memory that keeps us going in times of grief, discouragement, disappointment, and deep hurt, deep pain. Take the time to identify your sacred moments. There is no question the disciples remembered the transfiguration of Jesus. When the, the, uh, when the time get, got tough, the account, this account is found in all three synoptic gospels, that is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was so incredible experience, but it was recorded in all of them. This experience was stamped in their hearts and became fuel for their souls. No doubt that they were, when they were persecuted and faced suffering, that they will remember this moment. We have no idea how 2021 will unfold and what will come our way, just as we had no idea at the beginning of 2020 this is how it was going to be last year. Only let us remember how precious life's sacred moments are and the hand of God in it. Recognizing them and remembering them can help us get through the challenges of life. That as we, you know, are facing this another year with a lot of uncertainties, may we have this mindset to remember that God has been so good to us. Remember the sacred moments that God graciously allowed in your life. Remember those things. Identify them. May that really encourage us. Remember the faithfulness and the grace and the love of God that will really help us carry through even as we go through hardships and sufferings in our lives. Let's pray. Let's go before the Lord uh, and take a moment to ask God to help you identify those sacred moments. You had to have a few. And think about those precious sacramental moments, how gracious God was and how God has used people around you to minister to you. Maybe a word of encouragement that you did not expect, a note that you may have received, the act of kindness and grace that really spoke to you, the moment that you really understood the deep truth of God's word, the moment when the Holy Spirit really stirred your heart. Those are sacred moments. It doesn't have to be supernatural, but those are sacred moments that God has graciously allowed in your life. Let's go before God. Think about those things. Remind ourselves of his presence in the midst of uncertainties, in the midst of difficulties that we are going through. 